Hello and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast of Surge Faith. In this podcast, we explore the common lectionary with our hearts rooted in social justice against the backdrop of how forces of domination and oppression, especially white supremacy, are showing up in our lives right now. We get curious about how Jewish and Christian texts respond to the now so that we can reclaim our traditions from the grip of ill intentions instead ensuring their role as sources of abundant life. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. Before we get to today's exploration of scripture, I'd like to introduce myself and set the stage. My name is Haven Heron, and I serve as the director of Soul Force, a 20-year-old LGBTQI organization dedicated to sabotaging Christian supremacy and reclaiming our spirits. I come to this work as a white person, and an artist and a dancer and an earth tender, who knows that resistance to white supremacy is a significant part of healing my own soul. To further place myself, I am recording this today from the Dominican Republic, originally known as Quisqueya, aka Mother of All Lands, before the Spanish colonized this place and renamed this home of the Taino people Hispaniola. I put my hands in the water here today. When in a new place, especially one that is not of my people, I have a practice of finding wild water and offering my gratitude with an expression of humility, spiritually somewhere between a nod and a bow towards the water, the source of life that connects land to land to land. As a a settling exercise before we begin, I invite you to take a moment to nod internally to that which keeps you alive. I offer my gratitude and a humble invitation to the original keepers of this land to join us here today in our work if they wish. Thank you, ancestors, for the graciousness to be here today and pursue justice together. It's important to say that this podcast is crafted especially for white people. White people challenging, buttressing, caring for, and collaborating with other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy, and to do so by being in alignment with the leadership of people of color. We welcome reflections from everyone and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. Today I want to look at what it means to be born into. Born into a specific racialized body, born into a particular people, born into a certain location. And how we can help conversations about taking responsibility for white supremacy as white folks move away from blame, fault, or shame, and towards responsibility, capital C calling, and expressions of gratitude in the form of sacrifice. The portion of the common lectionary we'll take up today is 1 Samuel 1, 4 through 20, and 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Then I'll wrap up the podcast with suggestions for your own healing and action.
So Samuel got a book named after him. One, if you are coming from the Jewish tradition. Two, if you are embedded in the Christian tradition. Which means he is both his individual self and filling a larger-than-life role in the grand sweep of some important historical happenings. Indeed, he is the pivot point between the era of the rule of judges, where priestly figures were the interlocutors between humans and God, and the era of earthly kings and nation-building that begins with Saul, anointed by Samuel later in the book. We start with Elkanah, the father figure in the first chapter, where we spend the first verse on itemizing his lineage of forefathers, his own place in history. Then we come to learn he has two wives, Hannah, who is not able to give birth, and Penina, who has many children. Apparently, Penina gives Hannah hell about this, which also helps set this epic scene. Children are the byproduct of relationship with God, an emblem of God's favor and presence. They are also your legacy, your power, and your survival. So we know that this book is about more than the story of just one family. This is a laying down of layers of metaphor, building up the role that Samuel shall play in anointing the first king to unite Israel as a nation. So Samuel has not just a birth story, but an origin story. And how does Samuel take on this mantle? He is not from a priestly family. He has not passed the responsibilities from his elders. Hannah, his mother, fervently prays at the temple where her family makes their yearly sacrifice. Eli, the priest, thinks she is drunk, but no, she is simply praying so intensely that she seems to be in an altered state. Eli says that God will grant her prayers, which of course were for a child, one that she would commit to the service of God if she does give birth. And so she does, and that is how Samuel comes to be. Samuel, in due time, at a tender age, is given to the house of Eli to serve with the priest at the temple. There is possibly a bit of reluctance on the part of Hannah. She sends her husband one year to the temple for the annual sacrifice without her, explaining that she will go again with Samuel once he is weaned. But by and large, there is no great sadness or dismay in Hannah, Elkanah, or Samuel in leaving his mortal father's house to go serve in his spiritual father's house. There are so many stories in the Bible that pivot on the drama of firstborn sons, And yet, this is such a smooth transition for Samuel. I personally find it jarring. How did Samuel really adjust? Did Hannah have doubts? Possibly want to pretend that she hadn't promised her son to temple service in return for giving birth to him in the first place? This potentially fraught transition from childless to firstborn son to offering him to the temple to taking up a lifetime of service away from the biological family seems neutralized, tranquil even, by the forces that proceed and follow. As if there is a very humble spirit among the family at the center of this story, a spirit that knows it is woven into much larger narrative. I know that messy details may have been scrubbed in the telling and retelling of this biblical story that takes on metaphorical power through the ages, but let's engage with what is intentionally presented to us. Hannah expresses her joy and gratitude at the end of her childlessness in the form of sacrifice. She doesn't know she is going to have other children, but she was blessed in the exact way she requested, and she is willing to share that blessing with the broader world by giving her only child over to civic and spiritual service. In the second chapter, she even proclaims the righteousness and justice of God in prayer, 
not bemoaning the quote-unquote loss of her son, but appreciating the power of God. For Samuel, he doesn't fight or resist his place in the world. The way the story is told, he deftly and humbly moves into space crafted for him, not only by his mother, but by the social and political waves of the tribes of Israel inching closer toward nationhood. He answers a call, capital C, from God twice. There is one that's well known and obvious in chapter 3 of the book of Samuel. But the other one, equally ponderous, happens on his behalf, by his mother before he is even born. It's like he comes into this world and from a young age understands that he is knit into a web of family, community, culture, religion, and politics that are unavoidable. His life is necessarily in conversation with what came before and what is yet to be. There are so many other places I could take this reading, such as inquiries into sexism or the validity of nation building. But today I want to stick with how humans can respond to duty, privilege, and blessing manufactured by the accident of birth, biology, and family. Thanks for sticking with me on this bounding journey. Here's where I'm going with this. There are two frameworks that I want to pluck from the book of Samuel that I think may be useful for the most challenging conversations about white privilege. I know some of you will have dinner conversations coming up over the end of your holidays, and I think Samuel has good tools for you. Perhaps for the Christians around the table who are resistant to examining white privilege, or who are stuck in a place of fault and fragility, or who haven't quite found their way to embracing their responsibility as a white person to end white supremacy, the figures in Samuel offer a way through. Using Hannah and Samuel as models, you can take action in your most relational spheres, your family or your coworkers or your congregation, by invoking a shift in frame that moves people up out of defensiveness and into their joyful calling to sabotage white supremacy with all they've got. The first framework is from Hannah. She responds to abundance and blessing in the form of her new child with joyful sacrifice and generosity. White privilege is a sticky, aberrant kind of abundance, to be sure, but we have to grapple with the truth that it does bring ease, resources, and power all the same. Here is what Hannah teaches us in the plainest terms about responding to privilege. Yes to generosity, no to a posture of scarcity. Yes to sacrifice, no to an attitude of loss. Yes to gratitude, no to fear, and yes to celebration, but no to resentment. The second shift in frame is from Samuel himself, embracing the responsibility we are born into. All the history that brought us into being and all the impact our lives will have down the line. Samuel the man is a great example of this, and an antidote to the yearning for an ahistorical life that is embedded in statements like, well, that all happened a long time ago, and it's not my fault. Who quite knows what Samuel wanted? Maybe he wanted to tend sheep. 
Maybe he sometimes dreamed of a life that was not wrapped up in that epic sweep of history that plays out in the building up of Israel as a nation under God and king. But he did not demand ultimate individuality and therefore non-responsibility in the face of all the forces that positioned him into the life he received. So here is what Samuel teaches us in plain text. Yes to interdependence, no to extreme individuality that snatches us up out of history. Yes to service, no to selfishness. And yes to responsibility, but no to burdensome and arbitrary obligation. For our culture to collectively be honest about the truth and consequences of white supremacy, white people need to embrace that white privilege is real. Doing so helps orient us to where we have power to change culture and structures. It places us appropriately in history and justly binds us to the work that is ours to do. When guilt, shame, and fault creep into our conversations about white privilege, it clouds our ability to see ourselves as agents of change, tasked not with an unfair burden to end white supremacy, but a responsibility to end white supremacy, a calling for which we have the tools and power available to us. The shift away from heavy, personalized shame toward collective empowerment and sense of capital C calling is essential to the liberation of us all. For more resources on how to talk about white privilege, I look to the good folks at Race Forward and The Body is Not an Apology. I will provide links at the bottom of the transcript for reference. Thanks for spending your precious time with me at The Word is Resistance, the podcast of Surge Faith. And thanks to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl, for your labor and support. Many blessings and so much gratitude for you and your soulful activism. Until next time, I'm Haven Heron. <laughs>